What kind of God would allow this to happen? Maybe I can drive this home a bit further by telling you another story, uh, maybe perhaps a bit more of a familiar one. Uh, as some of you remember, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite Christian thinkers and probably the most uh, quoted person in my sermons, uh, married late in life. Uh, he had become a Christian in his early 30s and got married in his uh, mid-50s. And he was devastated when his, when his wife of only three years passed away from bone cancer. And he already knew that it was terminal, but he was still surprised by her death. Lewis described how God's presence seemed so overwhelmingly near in happiness, but how God's presence seemed so far in desperation. And he was telling this to his friend, and his friend tries to comfort him by saying that his feeling of abandonment was experienced by Jesus on the cross as well. And then C.S. Lewis replied, I know, but does that make it easier to understand? Not that I'm in danger of ceasing to believe in God. The conclusion I dread isn't, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God's really like. What C.S. Lewis feared wasn't the non-existence of God, but really his disillusionment of God. And I think C.S. Lewis's words are, I think, a little relevant here because the reality is that for many of us, it isn't that God doesn't exist. Of course he does. The problem isn't that God doesn't exist, but that he does. You ever find that to be a problem? Because when life hits rock bottom, we wonder, is this what God is really like? When God allows us to go through suffering, when God shoots down our dreams and aspirations, when God allows us to break a leg, when God allows our hearts to be broken, when God gives us things we didn't ask for, when God lets us down, the question that runs through our mind isn't, is God real? But is God really like this? The temptation that we find ourselves tempted to believe isn't that God is non-existent, but that God is cruel. That maybe God isn't as good as he claims to be. And so what do we do with this, this disillusionment? What do we do with a God whom we trust, but also seems to be the one who also puts us in danger? What happens if the God you believe doesn't stop you from breaking your leg? What if the God you love is simultaneously the God who breaks your heart? How would you respond? A common response that has led many to deconstruct and abandon the Christian faith entirely is the response of denialism. For example, when bad stuff happens, we just deny it and avoid it. And some of you just don't really like to deal with stuff. And so we bury it, we suppress it. Don't worry, everything's going to be fine. It's all good. I'm not even sure what we mean by it's all good. Augustine called this cruel optimism because it didn't really address the real conditions of human life. But, you know, I think I can understand why. Because if we start acknowledging just how terrible life really is, then we have an even bigger problem, the problem of pain. For this reason, for some of us, it's a lot easier to just ignore it and pretend that everything is okay. We might even come to the realization that whatever notion we believe about God's love or goodness isn't actually true. And so at least if we deny and suppress our pain, then we won't have to deal with the greater problem of pain and disappointment from God or others. But sometimes for some of us, the problem isn't that we're apathetic or that we're in denial, but really that we're just blatantly cynical. We must be authentic at all costs, even if it means blaspheming God. My authenticity doesn't bow to God. God must bow to my authenticity. But neither response is biblically faithful. The first response doesn't honestly reckon with the world as it is. Well, the second response, understandably, but unnecessarily hardens against the world as it is. 
The first response says, I will pretend that everything is okay so that I will be okay. Well, the second response says, I will become impervious to everything so that I will be okay. Now, these unbiblical responses are the reason why our chapter tonight in Job chapter 19 is so important. Because what we see in our passage tonight is a Job who is real and honest about his pain, but ultimately does not become jaded and abandon God because of his pain. Job's response to his pain is real faith, a, a robust, rugged faith in God that has been stripped of any false illusions about God. What we see in Job's response ultimately is how to hope. And so how do we hope in the face of pain? So the key idea for our passage for tonight is that Job's response to his friends show us that we hope by deconstructing and by reconstructing. The first point, taking two parts, the first is we need to deconstruct our false conclusions about God. We need to deconstruct our false conclusions about God. Now, if you've been following along in our Job series, if you haven't, because I'll just do a recap anyway, then you'll know that we haven't been moving chapter by chapter through the book of Job for various reasons. But if you need to know what's happening so far, not much honestly has changed. It's literally Job and his friends going back and forth from chapters 4 to 31. Job talks and then his friends respond, rinse and repeat, and they do, do this over three cycles. We're in the middle of the second cycle, right in the middle of actually the book of Job. And in our passage tonight, we find ourselves in the middle of this second cycle. Job's friends have become increasingly hostile, talking to Job about death and judgment. And in the previous chapter, Bildad, Job's second friend, even even goes so far as to paint portraits of how terrifying judgment and such death are to his suffering friend. It's like, you know, visiting your friend at a hospital and you show up to the room saying, hi, I just thought I'd bring you a copy of Card and Punishments for some bedtime reading. Oh, and by the way, uh, I brought Schindler's List for you to watch. Um, Also, I made you a Spotify playlist and I named it, you deserve this. (laughs) I mean, who needs enemies uh, when you have friends like Job's? Um, Don't do this with your friends, ironically even. And once again, Job claps back. Uh, Take a look at verses one to four. Then Job answered and said, how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These 10 times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. I mean, if you didn't kind of catch what was going on between these lines, Job is now begging his friends to stop verbally assaulting him. Their words are not only harsh and unhelpful, but they're also untrue. And even if it was true that Job did sin, which we clearly know in Job chapter, chapters 1 and 2, Job has, not, Job has not sinned, what business do they have of correcting him anyway? His error is his business, not theirs. But as Job continues to respond, Job makes a logical claim and jump similar to his friends. If you remember, the entire viewpoint of Job's friends is that you get what you deserve. If you do something bad, then something bad will happen to you. Just you wait. But if you do something good, then you will get into your dream school or whatever it is. Because according to Job's friends, that's what you deserve. But here's the thing. Job actually shares the same viewpoint of his friends. Job, like his friends, also agrees that you get what you deserve. But the problem is that we all know, and Job himself knows, that he is innocent. That's why Job is all messed up. He doesn't understand why all his bad stuff is happening to him, which leads us to the conclusion that Job is about to make. Take a look at verses 5 to 6. 
If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make me my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Whereas Job's friends conclude that God is punishing Job, Job thinks that God is out to get him. In other words, God is doing him dirty. If there's anyone to blame for his suffering, it's God, not him. Job holds God directly accountable for the situation that he's in. Now take a look at verses 7 to 12. Behold, I cry out, violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He, he has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped me from me for my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone, and my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me, and he counts me as his adversary. His troops come on, t- come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. From verses 7 to 12, Job is using metaphors to describe his feelings about God. In verse 7, God, God is like a person walking on the street, indifferent to the cries of the assaulted and the wounded. In verse 8, God is like a blockade. In verse 9, God has removed his status. In verse 10, God has uprooted him as a tree is uprooted. In verses 11 to 12, God has treated him as an enemy and someone to be conquered. I mean, this is raw stuff. These are strong words of accusation. Now, of course, we, we know that this isn't all that God, that all that Job thinks about God. Job knows that God is just and fair, but that's precisely why he is so confused and disillusioned. In his head, he knows what God is like, but in his experience, this is how God seems to be. Like, God, I thought you were just and fair. Is this what you're really like? You see, Job is convinced that his moral innocence should have warded off disaster because he believes that the world is, or at least should be, a manageable place run by a demanding but nonetheless predictable God who owes the righteous good vibes. That's what Job believes. But slowly the scales are starting to fall from his eyes. And before moving on, Job here legitimizes how we often feel about God. Sometimes we feel like God just doesn't care. That he's ignorant, that he prevents us from getting what we want, that he's out to get us. Job's honesty here about God authorizes our honesty with God. And as we've been talking about this entire series, God invites that honesty. And there's a meme I love, and I'm sure you all know it's in your your handouts. You guys are the meme generation after all. I would be actually surprised if you haven't seen this. It's this cartoon meme of this dog that is sitting on a chair while everyone around, everything around is being engulfed in flames. And it's sitting there with flames and smoke around, and it says, this is fine. (laughs) But God does not expect you to think or act or say, this is fine, when everything else in your life is burning down to the ground. The book of Job, the Psalms, and the Apostle Paul's letters have no room for this sort of denialism or stoicism. Instead, the scriptures, as we know, invites it. God invites you, even dares you, to come and bring it. God doesn't have a fragile ego who can't take your frustrations, your criticisms, or your anger about him. In fact, the theologian Ellen Davis writes that Job rails against God, not as a skeptic, not as a stranger to God's justice, but precisely as a believer. I mean, does Job sound like someone who has abandoned and rejected God? Does, Does Job sound like someone who's on the verge of giving up on God? No. As much as Job is speaking to his friends, he's also speaking to his God. 
God expects and presumes to receive the fullness of our speech, our questions, our complaints, our vents, our doubts, our cries, even our rage, all of it. If God is our God, then God will have nothing less than our unvarnished speech. And so have you. Have you been bringing what's in your heart, good or bad, right or wrong, to God? Just by way of being open and honest with you guys, Megan and I have been uh, trying to have a family for the past few years with obvious, with, with no obvious success. Uh, we're really happy for friends who have kids, but it's been hard to not have kids of our own. Because for every genuine congratulations, there's also heartbreak and, and sadness for us. I've had friends who didn't plan on having kids have kids. My younger sister has two kids of her own. My mom is always trying to give me Chinese herbal advice. I've received comments like, have you thought about adoption? As if adopted kids could replace biological kids. And also as if, as if a pastor hasn't thought about adoption before. And I've also received suggestions like, we couldn't have our second for a while until we resolved this conflict in our marriage. We resolved it and now we're on our third. As if to suggest that God is preventing us from having kids because maybe there's some secret interpersonal sin or conflict in my life that I need to resolve. There have been tears, anger, and grief. We feel like people are moving on with their lives and we wonder if we'll just be stuck forever in the same place. I mean, sometimes, honestly, I, I vacillate between feeling grief and YOLO. Sometimes, I, if I don't catch myself, I just roll my eyes when people talk about their newborns. Like, big whoop! They spit on you. So cute. And sometimes I feel like God doesn't see us. He doesn't hear us. He doesn't care about us. And I'm so glad that God authorizes me to feel this way about him. That in my grief, I can tell this to his face and he won't be offended by it. Also, by the way, please don't share this with anyone else outside of the high school group. Uh, this is very personal. And the fact that I share this with all of you makes me wonder if I should have shared it in the first place. Um, in fact, I didn't even ask Megan for permission to share this. So please don't text her afterwards saying uh, that you'll pray for her. Uh, I'm going to get in trouble. And in fact, maybe just, maybe just forget it. Forget about it, as you guys always do anyway. Um, I'm going to cut it from the, from, from the audio recording anyway. Um, but what about, just kidding, I actually did tell Megan this. She was, I was having her read it. She was like, actually, just keep that in. Um, but what I've also seen, too, is that the pain of the hard things in my life also led me to conclude some bad things about God. And, other, and others, and that's not good either. I've been tempted to think that God really is the author of evil. That, like Joe, God is just out to get me. That God really just doesn't care. And as legitimate as the pain that I feel or the pain that Job felt, what I found is that grief unchecked, pain unchecked, anger unchecked, frustration unchecked, always has the potential to make us turn inward and tunnel vision. And to illustrate this, I have with me a bottle bother. I don't, honestly, I don't know why I did this because this is like something that like, I don't know, third grade teachers do. Okay, so I just thought this would be helpful for us. But okay, I have this uh, with me, a bottle of water. Okay, so it's clear, I think, as, or as clear as it can be. Um, can you guys see in the back? Honestly, I don't, I don't know why I'm asking this. It's not show and tell. Um, I, I put some dirt in the bottle, which actually took me way longer than I thought it would take. Um, I'm like, dude, this is like part of my syrup rub. Um, but when it isn't moved, you can see through the bottle, right? It's clear because the water is clear. Well, kind of. Um, but when the, when, the, when the water bottle is provoked and bumped against, the sediment begins to rise and mix. And this is all, this is all of us. 
I mean, we are the bottled water with sediment on the bottom. And when life, with all of its pain and bruises, bumps us, the sediment that was always there shakes and mixes. And this is what's happening with Job. The sediment in our hearts begins to mix and rise as as, as life bumps and bruises us. For Job, this violent bumping and bruising leads him to make some pretty bad conclusions about God. The irony here is that Job does the same thing his friends do. Job's friends make similar conclusions about God. They believe that God is punishing Job, but but what Job's friends must never do, Job actually does himself. Job believes that God is the direct source of his pain. Job believes that God has mismanaged the world. He believes that God isn't following the moral logic of the universe. Job's pain has tunnel-visioned Job to conclude that God doesn't even care about him. You see, the tendency that we have when we experience pain is to self-insulate, to self-absorb, to self-indulge, to self-justify, to self-pity, to self-remedy, and to self-rely. It's a self-defense mechanism when we sense harm and danger. It's my pain or my grief. I'm right and everyone else else is wrong. No No one else is going through this except me. No one else knows how I feel except me. No one understands me, not even God. Therefore, the only person who can help me is me. And when this happens, our vision of God and ourselves become distorted. You see, like his friends, Job thinks he's figured God out. He thinks he knows what God is up to in the world. When he looks at his life, Job is a little too confident at the conclusions that he makes. But the reality is that Job, like his friends, doesn't know. Take a look at verses 13 to 20. He has put my brothers far from me. And those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my, bless you, and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my mother, of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Now, before we deconstruct Job's false conclusions, it's again, it's again important to note here the tension. Again, Job holds God accountable for all that has happened in his life. Job is alienated by those closest to him. He is He's ghosted by his wife. He is despised by his, by his servants. He's made fun of by little kids and betrayed by everyone around him. Job is completely alone and he ultimately holds God for his utter abandonment. Job turns his problem into God's problem because it is God who is both able and responsible for doing something about it. Job knows that the only one who can rectify his situation is God and no one else. And so it becomes God's problem, and God must do something about it. And this is good and right. God, Job does not let God off the hook. But at the same time, Job's perspective is, again, limited. Job doesn't know the full picture. Take a look at verses 21 and 22. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O O you, my friends. For the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are, you, why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Job is begging his friends and God 
to stop. And in his pain, from his limited human perspective, Job attributes all the bad stuff happening in his life to God. When we, the readers, know that there has been a satanic presence working behind the scenes all along. Right? Like I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, while God is the sovereign actor in the world, he isn't the only actor. There are evil people and evil creatures who actively act and rebel against the sovereign creator. God authorized Satan to harm Job, but he didn't author Satan to harm him. In Job chapter 2, verses 5 to 6, Satan says to God, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And so the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. And so we find out that only with God's permission, we know that it's been Satan this whole time. But the problem is that Job and his friends didn't, don't even have a category for innocent suffering, let alone supernatural evil. A couple of weeks, of weeks ago, I, I cautioned that if we are to help those who hurt, we must never presume to know why they hurt. And it is with the same caution I want to direct to those who hurt themselves. As much as it is appropriate and right to to hold God responsible for the hurt and suffering in our lives. Job's limited perspective and his false conclusions about God demonstrate that there are limits to our human understanding. Just because we suffer doesn't immediately make us experts on the reasons for our suffering. Just because we went through something hard doesn't automatically qualify us to speak authoritatively about it. You might, in fact, be the worst person to talk about it. Just because you lived yesterday doesn't mean you know everything about today. There are limits to what we know. And Job needs a shift in this kind of perspective. To hope again, Job must allow his false conclusions about God to be deconstructed and disillusioned by God. In fact, this is exactly what God does at the end of the book. While it is absolutely true that Job has spoken well of God God also doesn't let Job off the hook either. Because at the end of the book, God challenges Job for claiming to know things that he has no idea about. Because the reality is that God is doing a million things in our lives that we take for granted, assume, and don't even notice. I mean, when you were breathing, or sorry, when you were sleeping, what was God doing? I mean, he was maintaining the order of the universe. You know, I think for a lot of us, it's easy to think, live, and act as if we were the main character of this movie called reality. That we are the A-list star, that we are the most important figures in it. And if things that happen don't have direct relevance in our lives, then nothing's really going on. Like, where's God today? Like, nothing really happened in the past, like, 30 minutes. And in a, real, in a very real sense, I mean, we are the main character from our own perspective, I mean, the first person that we see in the mirror isn't someone else but ourselves. It's my life. It's my family. It's my grades. It's my school. It's my job. But while we are the the main characters of our own lives, there are other characters too, right? I mean, the people in your life, like your hurting friends or your hurting parents or even your hurting enemies. Yes, your life is about you, but it's your life, but it's not just about you. In his book, Confessions, Augustine wrote that God cares for each of us as if he cared for each of us only. But it doesn't mean that we are the only person in the world. 
Because the reality is that God is doing something bigger than Job, than you, or even me. God is doing a million things that we just don't see, that we just don't know, and that we don't even acknowledge. And so just because God hasn't done everything that we want him to do right away, doesn't mean that he's deaf. Just because a bird poops on my arm, or that I arrive one minute too late at a boba shop and it closes, or that I get an angry email from someone, or that I don't have kids yet, doesn't mean that God is out to get me. Or that he's blocked out my path and closed all the doors, or that he's useless. Just as everything doesn't happen for a reason, we shouldn't overinterpret every bad thing that happens into our life either. Just because God isn't working the way I want him to in my life, doesn't mean that he isn't working at all. He's still caring for Megan and I in a million other ways. You see, in my tunnel vision grief, I lost sight of the fact that God was still working. It doesn't minimize the experience of our pain and grief. It doesn't stifle our pain or our grief, but it's a counterweight to our pain and grief. That even in the midst of pain and hurt and disappointment, God is still working. Like I mentioned at the end of the book, God actually appears to Job. Like God actually shows up to talk with God, uh, to talk with Job. That's a spoiler alert, by the way. But also this book was like written like 4,000 years ago. Come on. But what God says to Job is surprising. Because God doesn't give Job reasons for his suffering. In fact, he doesn't explain it at all. And everything that God says to Job seems almost irrelevant if you actually take a look at it. Like, you would think that God would explain what happened in the heavenly courtroom to Job. You know, the whole wager between God and the devil. But, but, then, but then God just says stuff like, do you know who made rain pour in an inhabited land? Or, how about snow? Have you seen snow before? Or, have you seen mountain, have you seen mountain goats give birth? <laughs> and as, as I'm saying this, you're probably like, where, where, am I, where am I going with this? The point is that God is doing a million things in the world that we don't even know about. In an arid place where no one wastes water, God just flings rain on the desert. And the fact that no one is there to prove it just proves that God just does it for kicks. God is just flexing. What God is telling Job is, look, you haven't even seen most of the world. You don't even know what snow is, man. How can you say that you've got me figured out? How are you going to explain what I do in the world? How are you going to explain the inner workings of my sovereignty? Have we put God in a box? Do we think that we have God all figured out? At the end of the book, what God is trying to help Job see, from it, what God is trying to help Job see is his point of view. To think bigger. To expand his scope of how God could possibly be working, not just the everyday minutia, but working. God always responds. He just doesn't do it when we want him to. God responds to Job at the end of the book, which is not the way that he expected. God always responds to us, just not on our timetable. God always works, just not according to how we want him to work. And God always, always loves us. He just simply doesn't play by our rules. God will not be put in a box. What we get in the book of Job is a God without the illusions. For better or for worse, we get the real God. The God who loves us, but also the God who does not promise to do what, he, what we want him to do. 
God would not be, will not be manipulated. He might not be the God that you wished or wanted, but he's at least the real God. And in this sense, we get a God who is better than we imagined. Better, not because he makes our life better, but better because we get the real deal. And that brings us to the second point. We need to reconstruct what is true about God. We need to reconstruct what is true about God. Take a look finally at verses 23 to 24. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Being accused of every sort of wickedness on his deathbed, Job wants everyone to know, his, his friends, his wife, the people who abandoned him, everyone, that he is innocent. He wants his innocence permanently engraved. He wants everyone listening to his speech to write it down, to write them in such a way that no amount of erosion or erasure of time, space, or physicality will ever be able to remove his words. And it's, and it's kind of ironic that Job wishes this because little did he know, 4,000 years later, Job's story is actually immortalized. We're reading it now. Now, why does Job say this? Because Job actually thinks that he's about to die. I mean, this is Job unfiltered. Job has no time to be dignified or noble in his speech. This is Job at his lowest point. Job is in the darkest chapter of his life, of his suffering. He feels awful. His skin is splitting. He's covered in disease. His friends treat him as an enemy. And God is nowhere to be found. But Job knows something. In his pain and desperation, there is a certain kind of clarity in the pain. Job's pain surprisingly becomes his entryway and his occasion for hope. The irony of the book of Job is that it's only in the full admission of our pain that it opens the door to hope. There's no other way. Take a look finally at verses 25 to 29. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold and not another, my heart faints within me. If you say, how will we pursue him in the the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the judgment of the sword, that you may know there is judgment. Bless you. The God without illusions, the God who is real, is also the God who is our Redeemer. Redeemer is a technical term for a kinsman, a family member, a relative who helps and rescues and sets things right. The word itself means someone who restores or the one or one who brings back to an original state. A vindicator. This is the one who sets everything right. This is the one who brings everything back into order. This is the champion. But this is not just someone who makes things right after things have been made wrong. This is not just the creator, but the recreator. And though Job is immersed in pain, he isn't stuck in it. What goads and guides him through his pain is simply the de determination to not let God off the hook for a single moment. His determination to hold God accountable as the Redeemer ultimately and eventually becomes his hope for redemption. At the edge of his life, 
he's still holding on to God. When everything else fails you, when you are having your darkest day, when your friends talk behind your back, when nothing seems to be going your way, when you still feel like everything sucks, when you feel stuck, when your emotions are all over the place, when you're lonely, when everything hurts, we know that our Redeemer lives. After all illusions have been shattered, this is the kind of God that Job is left with at the end of the day. It's a redeeming God. It is a God who will set all things right. And again, this is not Job who has not suffered. This is Job who is on the brink of his life, who is at the end of his life saying this. It is a God who will make all things new, a God who will do something about our world, a God who promised that he would. And that's the tension. In a real way, God is held responsible for our pain. But God is also responsible for dealing with our pain. This is what we know. And this is how we hope. It doesn't have to look pretty. Hope doesn't replace pain. Hope doesn't promise to replace burden or anxiety or worry right now. Hope doesn't even answer our deepest and most hurting questions. But hope promises to bear with us. All throughout this chapter, Job spoke more truly than he realized. Job didn't realize that he not only spoke as a sufferer, but also as a prophet. All throughout chapter 19, Job referenced his closest friends deserting him, little children mocking him, being utterly abandoned and forsaken, body ripped to shreds. Job didn't know it at the time. But his abandoned and forsaken life actually foreshadowed Jesus' abandoned and forsaken life. How? If you look at the Gospels, as Jesus moves closer and closer to his appointed death, Judas, one of his disciples, betrays him. Peter, one of his closest friends, abandons him. Soldiers mock him. Jesus' body becomes like jello as he is whipped over and over and over again by those same mocking soldiers. And on the cross, Jesus is utterly abandoned to his death for us. At the start of our message, I referenced C.S. Lewis and how his fear wasn't that God didn't exist, but that this is what God was really like. What is God really like? A God without illusions. A God who doesn't really do what we expect him to do. A God who is good but unpredictable. A God who can't be put in a box. A God who does the unthinkable. He is a God who would willingly subject himself to his own abandonment. A God who would willingly inflict upon himself his own wrath. A God who would willingly step into a good world that he created but was broken by his own creation. A God who would willingly carry our sins and our sorrows upon his own back so that he would carry it away for us. Because that's exactly what God is like. This is what's true of God. This is our hope. You know, as as much as I want to have kids, as much as I want God to rectify that situation, as much as I want, I don't, as, I, as much as I don't want to be in this position, I still am. And it sucks. 
because I can't change that. And like I've mentioned before, I'd rather much trade what I, whatever I'm learning now for not experiencing it in the first place. But even though I'd rather not be in this position in the first place, the tension that I have too is that I'm not really happy with how I've been dealing with it either. I don't really like being annoyed. I don't like being bitter and resentful about it. I don't like being insincerely happy for others. I hate that I'm jealous of other couples who have kids. I hate that I'm critical of others. I don't like pitying myself. I don't like tuning God out. And as much as I want my situation to change, I want myself to change too. I mean, I, I hate that about, my, about myself. As discontent as I am with my circumstances, I'm also discontent with how I am also. I'm also discontent with how I've been processing my pain. As much as I want a renewal of my circumstances, I also need a renewal of my own heart. I need continual redemption there too. I need forgiveness. I need pardon for my sin. I need transformation. And this is what I know. I know that my Redeemer lives. It doesn't change the fact that I still might not have kids ever, but I know that my Redeemer lives. And that's enough for me. I know that God will redeem my earthly body in life and that through Jesus, he has redeemed and will continue to redeem my broken heart and my broken responses. And at the last day, he will stand upon the earth and I will see him. And that will be enough. But as much as I want that full redemption right now, I know that my redeemer operates in his own time and in his own way. I mean, Job didn't even know when he would see his redeemer. He says, after his skin has been destroyed. I mean, that's death. But the only thing he's sure of is that he would. He's anticipating resurrection. If God promises that he will redeem, then you can bank on that promise that he will. He will. But that he will, not right now, he will. Because he does it at his own speed and in his own way. The theologian Kosuke Koyama writes that God is the God who moves at three miles an hour. God's speed is a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we're accustomed to. He writes that love has its speed. It has an inner speed. It is a spiritual speed. It is the speed of love. And God walks slowly because he is love. So how do we hope but what is true of God? God redeems. And God is slow. All because God is love. This is true in our best days and even true on our worst days. Let's pray together. God, we have literally no one else that we can turn to. We can turn to our parents, we can turn to medication, we can turn to Netflix, we can turn to recreation, we can turn to friends. And they're all great things, but they're not you. And so God, we come to you and we, we recognize that you are not the God who is predictable at all. That you will do your, thing, your, your things your own way in our lives. 
But you can do it. We can't. And so God, we turn to you, our Redeemer. The God who promises in Jesus Christ that you will make all things right. And we know that, and I know for many of our students here, things are not right. Things are not all right for them. And I know that, and you know that, Father. But God, we thank you that you are the God who pledges through Jesus that you will. And we can bank on that. And so, Father, we we look to Jesus, who is our Redeemer, who reveals you, your heart for us. Father, we thank you and we love you. And God, I pray that I pray that our students would return to you. If they haven't, that they would. And if they do, that they would continue to. We ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord.